Well, we're in Ruth chapter four uh, next week, uh, planning on finishing up our study in uh, this book and for the big finish. I hope you found it uh, as instructional as I have, encouraging, uh, strengthening. We started last week uh, in chapter four, I think around verse seven. Uh, looking at four true characteristics or four characteristics of true love, uh, remembering that uh, in every book of the Bible, we're supposed to see Jesus Christ. And in the book of Ruth, he is the redeemer. Uh, there is a man named Boaz uh, who comes to the rescue of two ladies named Naomi and Ruth. Uh, Ruth is a young widow and Naomi is her widowed mother-in-law. Uh, and they're poor and they're destitute uh, with nothing totally dependent upon the welfare system in Israel. Uh, then they discover, according to the law of the land, uh, they have a relative who uh, can rescue them out of their difficult situation. Uh, and it's supposed to be a picture of the way that Jesus Christ rescues us and redeems us as well. And so we're looking at that. Uh, these characteristics last week, we saw that. Uh, true love takes action. We saw in verses one through four uh, that Boaz was a man of action. He didn't just say that he loved Ruth. He actually took actions to demonstrate that, which also mirror Jesus Christ uh, and God, our father, who took action to show us love. And secondly, we saw uh, that true love is willing to pay the price. And we saw that in verses five and six. Uh, that there was a man who was a closer relative who had uh, the right to the land and the right to marry Ruth. But he found out he didn't want to take Ruth as part of the package. He just wanted the land for his own wealth. And he thought it was too big of a bother. So he could have redeemed, but he chose not to. Uh, whereas Boaz not only redeemed, he went above and beyond what he needed to do. Uh, to redeem. So now we're going to pick it up this morning uh, in verses uh, 7 through 12 uh, to look at our other two characteristics of true love. Uh, but starting in verse 7, he said, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption of the land that belonged to, that belonged to Naomi's uh, dead husband and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man would remove his sandal and he gave it to another. And this was the manner to attest in Israel of the legal transaction. So this closest relative, closer than Boaz, said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal and he gave it to Boaz. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people who had gathered around, you are witnesses today that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to her husband, Elimelech. And all that belonged to her two sons, Chilion and Malon. Moreover, I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Naomi's son, Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from uh, the court of his birthplace. You are my witnesses today. And all the people who were in the court and all the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrata and become famous in Bethlehem. 
Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring, which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So we're seeing the the transaction going down where Boaz is buying the land. And not only that, he now has a, a legal right, but he's not compelled to. But legally, he can marry Ruth in order to raise up descendants for their family name. And we know that a very important descendant came from this union, don't we, between Boaz and Ruth. Uh, not only King David, but on down the line from him, our Lord Jesus Christ. So Ruth, a, a woman from a pagan foreign country, destitute, poor, widowed, is now going to be in the family tree of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, proof that God loves every person. God can also use any type of person. Uh, my wife gave me a quote this morning that she had read from C.S. Lewis, who, you know, uh, wrote many things, including the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, he said, you're never too old to set another goal. You're never too old to dream a new dream. And I think we see that here with Ruth. I think Ruth and Naomi are starting to get excited about what the Lord is now doing on their behalf after being through such a terrible, painful uh, time period in their lives of so much struggle uh, and hardship. And now it seems that the Lord uh, has his hand of blessing upon them. So we see Boaz going the extra mile to demonstrate these characteristics of true love. Uh, he is showing that he is uh, a man of excellent character, willing to sacrifice, willing to set his own uh, desires aside to care for someone else. And I had actually read uh, before. I don't know if I put that up there. Yes, I did. Uh, I came across someone said Boaz is demonstrating that there should never be any sloppy agape uh, in our lives. I thought that's good. I'm going to use that. Uh, in other words, in fulfilling his responsibilities, first to the Lord God, and then out of love for these two women by marrying Ruth and bringing Naomi into his home, he was showing the exemplary love of Jesus Christ. Uh, definitely not sloppy agape. Uh, and we know from these scripture passages that we've looked at many times uh, that Boaz is demonstrating the same attitude of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter two, a passage we're all very familiar with, right? That our attitude should be the same as that of Christ, uh, who, though being equal with God, did not regard that equality with God something to be grasped. But he laid aside the free use of his attributes and his humanity, and he became dependent upon the father, becoming a servant, humbling himself even to the point of death. And we see in the life of Boaz this kind of sacrifice and blessing. So as we move through the story, the third attribute of or the characteristic of true love is that uh, true love. Oops, we're not there yet. Oh, wow. Did, you know what? I wonder if I. Oh, I'm going to give you your blanks because uh, for the first time in my life, I made a mistake. Yeah. Wow. You can you can you can ask my wife. This is the first time, right? OK. All right. Let me give you your blanks then. Uh, number three on your outlines. If, by the way, you want an outline, and you don't have one. I think the ushers have some extra uh, if those guys are still out there. I don't know. 
Number three, true love is willing to be accountable. We see that in verses seven through ten. True love is willing to be accountable. So Boaz is going through this local custom uh, in front of ten witnesses, ten elders. But not only that, but the whole village is coming out. And there's this whole thing with the sandal to show transfer. It's just a local custom that they did. It's sort of like we would use a handshake today or we would use a signature today to show uh, that we were making a legal transaction and he gets this land and he's also going to take Ruth into his home. He's not buying Ruth. He's not purchasing Ruth. He's purchasing the land. You notice that this relative says you can buy it. And it says in verse seven, it's talking about uh, to show the transaction in exchange for the land. Uh, marrying Ruth was something that he was doing out of love in order to make sure that family still had descendants. So here we see uh, that Boaz is willing to sacrifice a lot of his own personal life uh, to marry this woman. Uh, and he was in love with her and he was going to also carry for care for her mother-in-law. Number four, uh, the other characteristic of true love that we see here is that true love receives God's blessings in verses 11 and 12. Those that were there. Uh, began to pray out loud or to call down a blessing upon Boaz and upon Ruth uh, in three different ways we see here. Uh, there's first of all a prayer for Ruth there in verse 11. They say, may the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah uh, who build up the house of Israel. This is a prayer uh, for them to be fruitful. And who are Rachel and Leah, if you remember, uh, those were the, the legal wives of Jacob, and they gave birth to the sons uh, who would then build the nation of Israel. And what's interesting, uh, I think the author mentions Rachel and Leah because they, too, did you realize that Rachel and Leah were non-Jewish, non-Abrahamites, I guess we could say, just like Ruth. And Rachel and Leah pledged allegiance, just like Ruth did, to the true God of Israel. So there's this connection of non-Jewish women playing a major role in the history of Israel. Secondly, notice there, there's a prayer for Boaz. May you achieve wealth in Ephrata and become famous in Bethlehem. Notice, though, when it uses the word wealth, we've already looked at this before. Uh, we see it in chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 11. It can be rendered to mean virtue or excellence or strength or valor. Literally, we would say uh, that this is being translated, that these people were saying to Boaz, may you do valiantly in Ephrata and proclaim God's name in Bethlehem. In other words, they were saying, you are wealthy, you are mighty, and those things have come to you from God. May you use everything God has given you to make him Famous. Isn't that interesting? He's saying God doesn't give you wealth and gifts and influence and position or whatever for you to just use it on yourself. May you take Boaz what God gives you to make his name even greater. And of course, he does do that, doesn't he? He's already showing that he's that type of person. And then when Jesus comes along, it will be the ultimate demonstration. Then there's a prayer for their offspring. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez. Whom Tamar bore to Judah. This is a prayer that's connected directly to what we call the seed promise that even starts way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
when Eve is cursed, and it's talking about how there will be enmity between your seed and my seed. In other words, between Satan and between Christ, there's going to be enmity because the word for offspring here in Ruth chapter four is literally the word seed. And it's carrying a vital, important meaning that's connected to the messianic line. So they're saying, may you have children. Uh, may the Lord bless you with children. And may they even perhaps be part of the family tree of the Messiah. Because that was every woman's hope uh, for her uh, child. So that's what's happening now. But notice the principle that is at work through this whole scene that we've been studying with Boaz and the way that he's demonstrating how we should love others. And then we also see it in Jesus Christ, don't we? That redemption is costly to the one who is doing the redeeming. Remember the other relative? He didn't want to redeem Ruth and Naomi, did he? He wanted the land, but the price was too high for him to take this woman into his own home as his wife. He began to compute the personal cost that it would be. And he was saying to her earlier in chapter four, we read at the end of chapter three a little bit. He was saying that price is just too high for me. Because if I marry Ruth and we have kids, then I'm going to have to split all my inheritance between my kids with Ruth and the kids that I already have. And it's just going to be a big hassle. And he says, no, I don't think I'll take this deal. Boaz, you're next in line. You can do it. But whenever redemption occurs, it always comes at a price, does it not? That's one of the lessons that we're seeing here. It cost Jesus Christ, did it not? Second Corinthians chapter two, verse uh, chapter eight, verse nine says, though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor so that we through him might become rich. And didn't we read in Luke chapter 14 earlier? Why don't we go to Luke chapter nine together? Take your Bibles or your never thought I'd say this or your handhelds uh, and turn to Luke chapter nine. I know I've told you this story before, but I always remember Once I was preaching and Judy's daughter, Jean, was down here and she was fiddling with her phone. And it was really annoying me as I was preaching because I noticed things. I'm talking, but I'm looking. And so after church, I said, Jean, you know, uh, I noticed that you were messing around with your phone the whole time during the sermon. I said, I'm not sure that's very wise. She goes, Pastor, I was reading the Bible scriptures, the Bibles on my phone. I'm like, oh, okay, carry on. Yeah, I'm old. I'm old. So take your Bibles or your handhelds uh, and go to Luke nine. But we read in Luke 14 earlier, didn't we? It says what man when he builds a tower or what military person when he's ready to go out to battle? Doesn't he first count the what cost? Doesn't he sit down and compute what all this is going to involve? What is this going to entail on my part? What is this going to cost me? What will I have to sacrifice? What do I need to organize? What do I need to pull together? I need to make a conscious decision if this is something I want to get involved with. And it's in the context of what there in Luke 14. If anybody wants to be my disciple. The context is discipleship. In other words, don't go rushing in and sign up to be a follower of Jesus until you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. Until you know exactly what is expected of you. Because Jesus says there in that Luke 14 passage and in other Gospels 
No man can be my disciple unless he does these things. It's not optional. It's not partway. It's not sloppy agape. He wants it to be a full-fledged commitment. Now, folks, sometimes I'm just going to keep it real. Robert told me a new phrase the other day. I can't remember it now. What's real with you or what's really real or whatever. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I got to work on my street lingo if I'm going to be going over there. Anyway, Marcus, you need to help me. We need to meet. So I was... But he's saying, if you really want to be my disciple, it's going to cost. You have to be willing to pay that cost. In Luke chapter 9, look at verse 23. And I think I fear, as I was going to say, I fear that uh, as Christians, we don't really understand. We've deceived ourselves many times. Thinking because grace has covered my sins, because the death of Christ has covered all my sins, which is true, it has. But then we kind of go into our Christian lives with this lazy, apathetic, indifferent attitude toward godliness and toward discipleship, especially in the area of sacrifice. I mean, it says on the back of your outlines, we'll get there soon, but I can't help but say it now. Any miner will tell you that mining is hard work, that all the digging and all the extracting and all that looking for all those stuff is hard work, but the rewards can be very great. So it's about counting the cost. Luke 9, look at verse 23. And he was saying to them all, all of those that were coming and following after him, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny what? Himself or herself. You ladies, it's, you know, you don't say, see, I told you, honey, That's, he's talking about you. That's in the masculine there. Uh, it's generic. It's neutral. Deny himself or herself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited, profited if he gains the whole world and yet he forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. But I say to you, truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Uh, He's talking about how later a couple of the disciples would see the transfiguration. They would see the Lord in all of his glory. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to follow me must take up his cross and deny himself. Deny himself. What does that mean? Talking about those passions, those desires, those wants, those things that we may be tempted to run after and cherish and nurture and they turn into idols. He's saying we have to wrestle with that every day, every day. If we want to follow after Christ, we, we sometimes think there should be a cruise control, right? We should be able to hit the cruise control. It should be a lot easier to be a Christian, right? I think that's the mindset that sometimes we have. I don't get this. Since I became a Christian, my life's even harder than it was before. And I say, yeah, because you're more sensitive to sin now. Yeah, because you're more the object of Satan's attacks now. You're part of the kingdom of God now. You're a marked person. And so now you're going to wrestle with the world, with your own sinful flesh, and with the devil in order to follow the Lord. It's that wrestling Some people here, I don't get it. I know you think of me as this strong, masculine, macho guy. I know. But, okay, all right. 
But I don't get it. But some of you are so into this wrestling and this cage fighting and this WWE and WWME and whatever, a CEF or C National. I don't know, whatever. So I don't know. And I watched a clip of a fight from Thailand, uh, and it's like it's so ugly you can't look away, you know. But it's like, the, did you guys see the clip of the fight that was over in six seconds? Because the dude just pounded the guy right in the face and <laughs> went down. It was, they said it was the shortest cage fight ever. Uh, but, I mean, that's, that's a description. If you're into all that wrestling and stuff, that's a description of the Christian life. We're in the arena. We've got to be willing to fight and to wrestle and to struggle. And, and that's why Paul told the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying there in Philippians, he's not saying, oh, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm saved. I've got to figure this out. Got... No, he's saying after salvation. That's more literally work out your sanctification. It, it means growing as a Christian in the Christian life is a struggle. A good struggle, a divine struggle, a holy struggle, not a miserable struggle, not a pessimistic struggle. But what we're saying is we've got to be willing to wrestle. Besides, folks, the, the winner has already been declared, right? Have you ever read the book of the Revelation? I mean, you could say the book of the Revelation, the title is Jesus wins. So we have our fighting and we can fight because the outcome's already been determined and he's given us. Peter says in his first epistle, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. First Peter chapter one. He's not only commanded us to fight, but he's given us every resource we need to fight. And so we need to look into the scriptures and learn to see how we do that. So there is a cost. Go to the book of Ecclesiastes with me. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Not a book we go to very often. But a great book. And if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to think, wow, was this written last week? Uh, because this stuff is really up to date. Uh, some people will accuse the book of being pessimistic. It's not a pessimistic book because one of the themes is all is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, I've done it all, Solomon said. But it's not pessimistic. What's pessimistic, he's saying, is a life that's lived only for this world. That's pessimistic, King Solomon says, because the very last book or the very last verse, I'm sorry, in the book of Ecclesiastes says when all has been said and done, the only thing that matters is to know God and obey him. That doesn't sound pessimistic. But if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verse 10, and we're going to be looking at some very uh, interesting uh, passages now because we're working toward a theme here. He says there in chapter nine, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, meaning the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, Sheol is where both the believer and the unbeliever went. It's the same place, but there was a great divide. Remember uh, the rich man and Lazarus in the New Testament. So and then when Christ rose from the dead, he took the paradise part of Sheol up to heaven and the hell part of Sheol stayed down below. So he's saying no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Do we understand what he's saying here? He's saying that now is the time to do what must be done. He's saying because once we die, you don't get to go back into this life and redo and undo and try to do again the things that you're supposed to be doing as you live your life on this earth. 
He's saying there's only one chance you get to make an impact and to serve the Lord in your uh, earthly humanity. Now, here's something that Solomon is pointing at. If we don't we don't have time, but if you go back and check the context of what he's saying, he's saying here that the great problem is mediocrity, mediocrity. Do you know what that means? It means just kind of medium, kind of lukewarm, kind of half hearted. You know, and mediocrity reveals its way, itself in two ways, right? When things are mediocre, they either don't get done or they don't get done excellently. And he's saying now is the time to make sure what you're doing gets done and gets done in an excellent way. And especially for God's people, there should never be any mediocrity for the Christian. All things should be done wholeheartedly for the Lord. And that's a theme running throughout the New Testament, modeled on the fact that Jesus Christ himself did all things well. Did he not? Jesus always did all things well. John chapter 13, verse 1, it says what? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. He saw them all the way to the end. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, or chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Be imitators, therefore, of God in your love for one another specifically. Listen to what Jay Adams, uh, a biblical counselor that I, I really enjoy uh, his writings, what Jay Adams says about mediocrity. And I have it on your outline so you can read along with me. Or not out loud. I'll read out loud. You just read. Okay. I know some of you. You'll start reading out loud. The one who settles for mediocrity often tells himself, I can put it off until tomorrow. There's plenty of time. But he thinks arrogantly. He does not know the future. He doesn't even know whether there will be a tomorrow for him. He makes excuses for himself. I'm too tired to do anything today. I'm just not in the mood to get it done. But tomorrow never comes. That's how he describes mediocrity. Either it doesn't get done or it doesn't get done well. And you're thinking, Pastor, why are you busting our humps about this mediocrity? We'll see a connection here in just a moment. Because aren't both Boaz and Ruth, and we're talking about Boaz's excellent love that he demonstrated for Ruth and for Naomi, They're both described in the book of Ruth as people of what? Excellence. People of excellence. In fact, we know our English Bible is arranged differently than the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, you read Proverbs 31, then you go to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Why do you think the Bible for the Hebrews is arranged like that? Because Proverbs 31 is talking about what? The excellent wife. Then you go right into Ruth chapter one. They're both described as people of excellence, people who don't who didn't know what it was like to be mediocre. Did not we see that in Ruth's character and how she responded to the hardships and the trials around her? And then some even say that Proverbs 31 is perhaps a description of Ruth. And you look at how that describes her. 
as a, a loving mother, a faithful wife, a hard working employee, a shrewd businesswoman, a creative person. And it goes on and on and on and on to describe her excellent pursuits. Now, we are commanded as well to pursue things of excellence. And I want us I want us to look at all these verses in this order. So go with me to first Timothy chapter four. We've got to wind this down. But I want us to see that Boaz and those characteristics of love were demonstrating that excellence in his character. And then in Christ, our savior, the excellence of his character and how we, too, as Christians are called to be people of excellence. In fact, I think that Christians, whatever field the Lord calls you in to whatever vocation that you believe you're being called in, you should always seek to be the best in your field. Because you're a testimony, you're a witness. And just like the village said to Boaz, may you take your gifts and talents and wealth and use it to proclaim the name of God. We as Christians should say, hey, I'm a nurse, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher, I'm a stay at home mom, I'm a a factory worker, I'm a salesman. And you know what? I'm going to be the very best one I can be so that people will be able to see Jesus in me. Not for myself. We should be people of excellence. I forgot to throw in students. Mm-hmm. Sorry, thought you got off the hook. Students. First Timothy 415. It's not just me. These are biblical principles. Paul said to Timothy, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all progress. Important word. That's the word I want to point out there. That word progress carries with it the meaning of cutting a fresh trail into a brand new territory. He's saying, Timothy, you should work so hard at what you're called to do. You should be so faithful and study so hard in your calling as a pastor that it should be evident to all that you're blazing this trail where it's never been before. Because in all that we do, we make sure we do it to the glory of God, Paul told the Corinthians. Whether you eat or drink. See, eating and drinking are not those mundane, mediocre things for some of you. Not for me. I have the the gift of eating. But they're supposed to be mundane activities, right? But he says what? Whether you eat or drink and all that you do, do it all to the glory of God. It's interesting. You know, for the Christian, there is no such thing as mediocre. There is no such thing as mundane. Everything is sacred because it's been sanctified because the believer is sanctified. Now go back to Romans chapter 15, verse 14. I was going to do this for the graduate Sunday. I probably should say this. I thought this is a perfect graduate uh, sermon, but we'll have to come up with something else now. Or if you're like me, you'll forget about in a couple weeks. I could do it again. All right. Chapter 15 of Romans, verse 14. He says what? And concerning you, my brethren, Christians in the churches around Rome, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able. That's the word, the Greek word for competent and competent to admonish. That's the word for counsel. I am fully convinced that all of you Christians are fully competent to counsel one another. And the word we want to pull out there is that word 
uh, competent or competency because it's talking about able to accomplish something. They had the, the skill, they had the knowledge, he believed, they had the know-how to get things done. And in this context, he's talking about the counseling aspect of Christian to Christian. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, just a couple more verses here. I'm just trying to pull out these principles of excellence, particularly when it comes to our spiritual lives, but really... Uh, any part of our life. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse five. Now we're talking about sufficiency, sufficiency to do what we're called to do, the sufficiency to be competent, the sufficiency to be able to show progress or to blaze a trail comes not from ourselves, but from God. Second Corinthians three, five. Not that we are adequate or sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency or adequacy is from God, who also made us sufficient or adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, kills, but the spirit gives life. So our adequacy, first of all, our sufficiency before God comes from Christ. But in whatever endeavors we do, Paul commanded Timothy, work hard, show progress, let everyone see how you're doing. And Timothy can say, by the grace of God, he has made me sufficient and adequate to be able to do what he called me to do. Now go back to Proverbs chapter 22. Very, very telling passage. Proverbs chapter 22. And look at verse 29. We probably have different versions, but let's get us all involved here because it's getting a little warm in here. Let's read it out loud together. Verse 29 of Proverbs 22 it says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. That word skillful is the Hebrew word machir, M-A-H-I-R. You may not care about that, but it's going to come up again in a moment. It's the word for skillful. It means to be an expert or to be proficient. And notice how the writer of this proverb uh, puts the skill of this person in both a positive and a negative way. He says the person who is skilled in his work will stand before kings. What does he mean by that? He means if you seek to be the very best at whatever God has called you to do, both spiritually in spiritual principles, loving others, serving others, your spiritual growth, or in your vocational calling, your career, or whatever it is God has you to do, or even a task around the house or whatever it is. If you show great skill, he's saying, and you develop that work ethic, that uh, character in your life of being a hard worker, you will be able to have influence in important places. People will see the skill that has come from the sufficiency of God in your life just by being a hard worker. And then he then he says in a negative way, he will not stand before obscure men. What is he saying? He's saying if you seek to be the very best, if you seek to be a person of excellence, it will not go unnoticed. It will not go unnoticed. We should be people of excellence like Jesus Christ was, like Boaz was, like Ruth was. Just to give you a quick example, Ezra is called Mahir, the word we just saw in Proverbs. I told you it would come up again. 
But look while the scriptures, how the scriptures describe the prophet Ezra. It says, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, and the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. See, we see the sufficiency, the adequacy coming from God. We see God's blessing for Ezra seeking to be skilled or to be an expert, to be proficient in what he's doing. Unless we think, well, he was a prophet. You know, God just kind of waved his magic wand and boom, he was a skilled scribe. Uh, No, I knew you were going to say that. So we'll look at verse 10 of the same chapter. It says he was skilled and he was blessed of God. Why? For Ezra, he did what? He set his heart. To study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach it and uh, to teach all of its statutes and ordinances in Israel. He became skilled because he set his heart to be skilled. In other words, he became single minded in his pursuit of what he knew he was called to do. He did not get distracted. He did not get sidetracked. He did not get lazy. He did not get sloppy. He did not procrastinate. He was not mediocre. He was determined. It took effort. God didn't just wave his prophetic wand and he became skilled. He worked at it. He worked at it. What are some impediments we see in the scriptures that keep us from being people of excellence? You have these on your outline. Laziness. Laziness is a huge impediment. Look what Proverbs 21 says. I have that written out on your outlines. It says, all day long the sluggard craves for more, but his hands refuse to work. Remember we talked about how God working in Ruth and Naomi's life, God often works in counterintuitive ways, in ways that we wouldn't think make sense. Look how laziness is described. What, is, what adjective is used to describe the sluggard? Craving. Laziness is a form of greed. Isn't that interesting? Laziness is a form of greed because I want the blessings. I want the benefits. I want all the good things, but I don't want to have to put forth any effort. We're seeing sloppy agape here. Someone who doesn't want to work, someone who doesn't want to practice self-control or self-discipline. Look at some of the other impediments to being a person of excellence. Worldliness. Chasing and pursuing after the things that the world loves. Love of comfort. Love of comfort. Procrastination. Lack of self-discipline or self-control. Making excuses. Blame shifting. All of those things keep us from becoming people of excellence. Also, something else very interesting. You don't need to turn there because I have the verse there from Psalm 131. But dreaming too big. Dreaming too big. The psalmist says there in Psalm 131, I do not concern myself with great matters or with things too wonderful for me. Sometimes we just think too big. We try to dream too big. We try to bite off things that are just way too big for us that are out of our league that may not even be what we're called to do. Because we haven't gone to the Lord with those things. You see there on your outlines, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Here's our last slide of the day. That Paul calls us to be people of excellence, right? In all that we do, do it all for the glory of God. We want to follow the example of Boaz. We want to follow the example of Ruth. We want to follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Go to Hebrews chapter 12 with me. We're going to wrap this up. And I have the scripture on your outlines for you. So what do we do to be a person of excellence? First of all, the scriptures tell us, look to our greatest example of excellence. Look to Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the shining example of one who knew the great cost, and yet he still did all things well. He did all things well. Secondly, to be a person of excellence, we want to identify and then eliminate the impediments in our lives, the things that entangle us. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, all those people listed in chapter 11, let us also do what? Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that he has set before us. It takes some thought, right? We have to sit down. We have to pray. We have to think. We have to search the scriptures. We have to think, what are the impediments in my life that keep me from being a person of excellence? What is the bad fruit there that I need to put off and replace with the godly characteristics of the good fruit? Starting in Galatians chapter 5 with the fruit of the Spirit. It takes some thought. And a person who doesn't want to be mediocre, which should be every Christian, Gives it that thought that it deserves. Then thirdly, what should we do? And by the way, that first Corinthians nine passage on your outlines, it's an excellent place to go. Paul says, don't you know that everyone who enters the race enters to win? He says, therefore, run in such a way that you can win. Then the third and the last thing we do, if we want to be people of excellence, and I think it's very important, it's. May be, it may sound very boring, but it's very important, is to chart a daily course for excellence. A daily course. In other words, if this is my long-term goal of what I believe God wants me to do, these are my short-term daily goals to get me to that long goal. If I want to be a man of God, what do I need to do? I need to spend time in prayer. I need to spend time in the Word. I need to spend time getting plugged in at church and serving. All those things should be structured and planned out daily. That's how you run. Doesn't every athlete, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, every athlete enters into strict training. Strict training. Strict training. And any of you who have ever lost weight and gotten into really good shape or have been involved in sports or athletics, And if you're serious about it, you're very strict, aren't you? You're strict. Well, your friends are down at In-N-Out shoving two-by-twos into their face. You're eating a chicken cob salad, no dressing, no bacon, no blue cheese, extra egg. Yeah. Strict training. It takes effort to be a person of excellence. And it has to be organized daily. Daily godliness and meeting other goals for the glory of God doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. Paul told Timothy to work hard 
to show everyone that your progress is evident. Let's stand up together. Let's close with just a word of prayer. I am going to give a call this morning. I don't always do that. Some of you come to me sometimes and say, hey, could you have an altar call today? (laughs) I say, well, if the spirit tells me to, I will. Uh, I have a hard time just forcing it. But today I really feel like uh, I, I do feel like. Not just with our church, yes, with our church, I'm just going to be honest, but with the church in America in general, a lot of us are just so mediocre Uh, and for a lot of different reasons, all those impediments that we've seen Uh, when being a disciple of Jesus Christ comes at a great cost and it requires self-control, it requires self-discipline, it requires doing the work, right? Have you ever shown up for a big test and you know you didn't study, so then you pray, Lord, help me do well on this test. (laughs) You know, and then you get an F and you say, Lord, you let me down. No, what happens? You study as hard as you can. You put in the time, you put in the effort, and then the Lord blesses you for what you have done for his glory. I think some of us have gotten sloppy in our in our walk with the Lord. We're kind of on cruise control, maybe. Uh, we're not having, we don't even have, you know, I've been so alarmed at the number of Christians I talk to that tell me they don't really have a, a prayer time with the Lord. Uh, it shouldn't be. Or people, or Christians, people who claim to be Christians and they only open their Bibles on Sunday. I don't get it. That's mediocrity. There's really no place for that for, for a Christian. And a whole host of other things. But let me just say, uh, if you want to be a person of excellence and you just want to put a stake in the ground today, whatever it is, whatever it is the Lord is calling you to or whatever it is the Lord has put on your heart, you just feel like you're, you just haven't given it all that you should. Whether it's your walk with the Lord or whether it's your vocation as a witness or whether it's your education, it doesn't matter, relationships. But you want to be like Boaz. You want to be like Ruth. You want to be like the Lord. And you want to be a person of excellence so that his name is glorified. And we don't need to know all the details, but I'm going to give you a chance just to come up. You say, well, why do I have to do it in front of people? Did not Boaz make his declaration of love to the Lord and to Ruth? One of the things true love demonstrates is that it's willing to be accountable. It's willing to be accountable. It's not afraid to be accountable. He made his declaration in front of that whole village. So that's why we ask you to come forward, just so you don't have to do it alone, for encouragement, for accountability. If you would like to be more of a person of excellence, I'm just going to pray and you just come forward as I'm praying. Lord, thanks for today. I pray that uh, not my voice, not my thoughts, but your word, all the scripture that we've looked at today, your divine word delivered by your spirit through the apostles uh, will speak to us today uh, that some of us. We do desire to be people of excellence, but there are impediments in our lives that we haven't really cleaned up. You know, and elsewhere, Solomon says, beware of the little foxes. And sometimes we we think of things as respectable sins as just. But the little foxes, Solomon says, can do a lot of major damage if we don't keep an eye on them, if we don't protect our fields against them. We just want to be more a people of excellence. And Father, the days are getting darker. Uh, It's obvious the signs are all around us that the world 
uh, keep spiraling down further and further into the abyss of immorality uh, and godlessness. And, and more than ever, we need to be people of excellence, people who love in the Lord's excellent way, who work in the Lord's excellent way, who study in the Lord's excellent way uh, so that we can point people to Jesus Christ to the light in this dark world. So, Father, our prayer is that you would... I want for each person, especially those that have come forward, uh, to uh, search the scriptures, to pray, uh, for you to clearly reveal to them perhaps what the impediments are in their life. Uh, unbiblical behavior, unbiblical thinking, unbiblical speaking, whatever it is. Help them uh, to know clearly what those are. And then, Father, to show them how to turn those impediments into advantages. Uh, what to put on as they put off. Uh, I also would pray, Father, you would give them the fortitude to maybe go to another brother or sister and say, hey, I want to be more excellent in my life for the Lord, and this is what's holding me back. Can you help me? So I pray, number two, that they would seek out help if they need it. Uh, And number three, Father, I pray you give them joy. Uh, Joy in the struggle. Joy in the wrestling. Joy in the working out of their salvation. We know, Father, that the scriptures say clearly, uh, if anyone wants to come to you, must first of all believe you exist and that you richly reward those who earnestly seek you. You bless and reward those who earnestly seek you. Not just in words, but are willing to pay the price, that are willing to count the cost, that are willing to sacrifice denying themselves that you will bless that you will bless that so I pray a blessing on them as the villagers prayed a blessing upon Boaz and Naomi and Ruth I pray a blessing upon these folks that have come forward Father uh, that you would help them to be people of excellence so Father every good thing that happened here today you receive the glory the honor and the praise and you alone because you alone are worthy Uh, so we thank you and we praise you in Jesus name Amen Thanks. Come up and encourage these folks. Talk to them. And don't forget to sign up for food for our graduate Sunday.